0: Welcome back to On The Mix. I'm your host, Lindsay, and today I am coming at you with a Jimi Hendrix episode. There's a lot of information. There's a lot of good information in this one. I had to go hard on Jimi Hendrix because he's just absolutely phenomenal. So even though Jimi Hendrix only lived to be about 27 years old, he lived quite an interesting and fulfilling life. I mean, researching him, I genuinely had no idea about his background and his childhood, how he even came to be one of the best guitarists of the 20th century. I genuinely just had no idea about his story. I'm excited. Let's just go ahead and dive right into the story of Jimi Hendrix. So Jimi Hendrix was born Johnny Allen Hendrix on November the 27th, 1942, in Seattle, Washington. He was later renamed as James Marshall by his father, and his father is James, also known as Al Hendricks. And Jimmy actually descended from quite a professional line of entertainers. His grandmother is Nora Rose, and she was a dancer with a traveling group called Lacey's Band. And her husband was a stagehand and a roadie for Lacey's Band, so that's how the two of them met. His grandparents settled in Vancouver, Canada, and in 1919, Jimmy's father, Al, was born. Al had a love for competitive dancing and singing as well. In 1941, Al got engaged to Jimmy's mother, Lucille Jeter, and they married in 1942, and this obviously is when Jimmy was born. Jimmy grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood, and he had five younger siblings. They all actually had a very tumultuous childhood. This is really interesting, just learning about his background with his parents, to be honest. So their mother died when Jimmy was about 15. And the thing about Jimmy's mother is she was quite the party goer. She just loved the nightlife. She loved to go out to clubs. She had developed a drinking problem as well. So she was never really around And when she was, though, she was a good mother. However, she was always kind of free-spirited, I suppose. She just always wanted to be out partying and drinking and doing her own thing. And with all of this came her notorious cheating. And she would cheat um, quite often. She had quite a number of partners. And one of her lovers was Johnny Williams. And so this is quite an interesting little detail is Jimmy's father is Al Hendrix. However, the thing about this is we aren't sure if Al is Jimmy's biological father or not because it could be said that Johnny Williams was actually Jimmy's father, but again we just we just don't really know because when Jimmy was born, Al Hendrix was stationed in the Pacific with the US Army at the time. So Lucille was going out with this Johnny Williams, and when Jimmy was born, he was given the name Johnny. A love triangle came about between Lucille, Al Hendrix, and then this Johnny person that came in the mix here. Okay, I hope this is all making sense. There's a lot of Jimmys and Johnnies. I hope it's all making sense. Baby Jimmy Hendrix was born as Johnny. His father, Al, changed his name to Jimmy. Does that make sense? Great. So in 1952, eventually Lucille and Al divorced and Al took custody of the children. So Al was trying to get his life together with his finances and it just ended up that some of the children ended up going to orphanages, being passed around to other family members and Jimmy also went to a few different orphanages too because, you know, Al just couldn't take care of the children. Um, So they had to fend for themselves from a very, very early age. And that's obviously not the best environment to grow up in because that leaves a strong impression upon you. A year later in 1953, Al was able to get his financial situation in order to a point where he could eventually take back custody of Jimmy. Unfortunately, there was a lot of on and off with his father because there was a lot of abuse that would go on between... Jimmy and his father, like physical abuse. And of course, when you don't have a mother and she dies at 15, and then you have this father who can't really take good care of you and your other siblings, it just leaves again, like another strong impression. One thing that was for certain though, was Jimmy always had a very strong interest in music. And he drew on a number of influences that kind of ranged from a few different genres. He was really into blues and jazz um, a couple of his favorite musicians were B.B. King, Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf, Buddy Holly, and Robert Johnson. And Jimmy is entirely self-taught. So Jimmy couldn't read and he couldn't write for a very long period of time. Jimmy learned all of his musical abilities by ear. So by the summer of 1959, Al had purchased Jimmy a $5 secondhand acoustic guitar. And this is when Jimmy really was starting to come into his own with his music. And he was, again, just teaching himself how to play the guitar. And one of the songs that he learned to play guitar from was a song called Louie Louie by Richard Berry. It was pretty simple. It just had three chords. So he was able to play that over and over and just to really get a feel for his own style and how he can kind of take his inspirations, and morph it into his own talent. So shortly thereafter, Jimmy joined his first band called the Velvet Tones, and after a three-month stint with the group performing at various kind of small gigs, Jimmy left to pursue other interests. And the following summer, Al purchased Jimmy his first electric guitar, which is a Supro Ozark 1560S. And Jimmy used this guitar when he joined the Rocking Kings in 1959. His unique sound, and we're all aware that Jimmy has a very distinctive, unique way of playing guitar. One of the reasons why he is so distinctive is the fact that Jimmy is left-handed and he was playing right-handed guitars. It just wasn't really extremely common that you would find left-handed guitars Or left-handed instruments and so what Jimmy had to do he bought or he had right-handed guitars and he would flip the guitar around and he would restring the guitar so that way he kind of just configured it all on his own similarly to like what Paul McCartney did in the beginning where he would play bass left-handed but he had to restring the bass over so that he could actually play it somewhat properly so that's why that whole thing added to his dynamic guitar playing as well. So eventually in 1960, Jimmy dropped out of high school because according to him, he was kicked out when he talked back to a teacher. So he was like, peace out. I am not going to school anymore. I am doing my own thing with my music. And the thing about Jimmy is even though he wasn't making a lot of money, he was working kind of part-time on his father's landscaping business, making a dollar here or there. So he wasn't making a lot of money, of course. And Jimmy always had this zest for this kind of somewhat extravagant lifestyle. He loved the finer things in life. And so to give this lifestyle to himself, he wasn't averse to stealing to get what he needed or to get what he thought he needed. He was always up and up with fashion. And so he would, you know, steal to make a couple of dollars and buy the fashion that he wanted to buy. I mean, Jimmy was a fashion icon. I mean, even when he was, you know, really starting to get some momentum going in the late 60s, that whole kind of fashion scene, no one else was really kind of doing what he was doing. So he was really propelling that forward big time. So, you know, this came to a head when one day he stole somebody's car and he took it for a (laughs) joyride, as you do, I suppose. And the police picked him up and he was arrested, but he never went to jail officially. So in order to avoid any kind of sentencing, he agreed with his lawyer that he would enlist in the army. In 1961, Jimmy officially left home to enlist in the United States Army And in November of 1962, he earned the right to wear the Screaming Eagles patch for the paratroop division. So he was a part of the paratroopers. That's what he was doing. And he joined them for 14 months. And there was um, a story going around that, according to him, he left because he broke his ankle jumping out of a plane on one of the many occasions he had to do so. However... According to, like, official documents and stuff, that was not the case. He was kicked out because he was unconforming to the rules and regulations. And also, it was said that he was heavily distracted from his army duties because he couldn't stop thinking about his guitar, and so he was discharged. It's just kind of one of those things. And so when he was in the army, his father, he sent Jimmy a new electric guitar, and Jimmy named this guitar... Betty Jean, after his girlfriend back home. And so this is what Jimmy would kind of use to practice on when he was in the army, I guess on downtime. And in the army, he formed a friendship with Billy Cox and they started this band called the King Casuals. And after Jimmy was kicked out of the army and Billy later followed, the both of them went to Nashville, Tennessee to try and make it big with their band. However, Jimmy was always one to keep pawning off his things in order to get money for himself and again, fund this lifestyle of his. So he had this really awesome guitar and he pawned it off of someone while he was in the army. When Billy and Jimmy were in Nashville, he had to go back to the army base (laughs) and say, hey, like, can I get my guitar back? I kind of need it. So he inadvertently got his guitar back and he made it back to Nashville. However, this wasn't the last time that Jimmy was to pawn off his guitar. It was said that when Jimmy got back to Nashville, that he pawned his guitar off again for $150 to the owner of the Delmonico Club in Nashville, Tennessee. And this is according to Billy Cox. He recalled that Jimmy never paid the owner back. So the owner of the club ended up keeping this guitar for four years. And it was kind of speculation as to whether this guitar is still out there in Nashville or like what happened to this guitar. It's said from Billy Cox himself that after extensive looking for this guitar later on in life, that he ended up learning that this guitar got burned in a house fire four years after the owner kept the guitar. So... That guitar is no more. However, it's just a kind of interesting story. So that's just the story of what the Betty Jean guitar went through. But so they were still in the King Casuals at this time. So they were going around and they actually got a bit of hype behind the King Casuals. Um, they were touring mainly kind of in the South, but they were touring kind of all over. And Jimmy noted that during a concert that he personally attended in Seattle, he saw Butch Snipes play the guitar with his teeth, which is so unusual. And so Jimmy saw this and he adopted this technique for himself. And by touring the different venues around town, he had a little bit of money. However, with the money he had it just burned right through his pocket and... Sometimes it was rough for him where he would sometimes find himself sleeping on the streets, not having enough money to buy food for himself. So these tours were very important for him to get by living just on the daily. Later in January of 1964, he ended up quitting the King Casuals and he went to New York. So he made it to Harlem, New York, and he formed a very important relationship with a girl and he moved in with her, and they developed a strong relationship with each other. This woman is named Lilithane, or Faye for short, Pridgen, and she was the former lover of Sam Cook, and she always was just kind of going around to the different Black singers in New York at the time. She was very free-spirited. She just kind of loved being in that lifestyle, And some of the people that she hung around with were James Brown, Jackie Wilson, Etta James, Marvin Gaye, Sam Cooke, of course, and more. So when Jimmy first came to New York, he was alone. He had no friends. And when he met Faye, she really, really fully introduced him and ingrained him into the black music culture of Harlem, New York. Like they would go around to all these pubs and restaurants and he would bring his guitar with him just for the off chance that he could play guitar for anybody. It didn't matter who it was, like he would just hope that he could play wherever he would go. Um, So the two of them, Faye and Jimmy, formed a very strong relationship with each other. And it's believed that she was the inspiration for Foxy Lady. So, you know, she was um, helping him to grow and go places in the music industry and with, you know, the black community. He was really a big proponent of helping and supporting his own community. And, you know, unfortunately, Jimmy was only 19 at the time. He was young, but he was still growing up. Like, he had a lot of growing up to do. Um, And she and him just had this really strong connection with each other. Unfortunately, she wasn't willing to give up her free-spirited ways to settle down, even though Jimmy and her just, like, loved each other. It just wasn't something that was going to really happen. But, She introduced Jimmy to a lot of these people, these big names in the music industry. And while this was all going on, Jimmy was progressing more with his guitaring. He progressed so much that he ended up winning an award at the Apollo Theater in an amateur guitar contest. So that's really cool. So the word was just getting spread all around New York, Harlem, and the neighboring communities about Jimmy and his guitar skills. And one of these bands that Jimmy joined initially while in New York was called Joey D and the Starlighters. And interestingly enough, there is a connection with Jimmy and actor Joe Pesci. Joe Pesci was making a big in the music industry. He was trying to create a, a name for himself. And Joe Pesci actually played guitar for this band, Joey D and the Starlighters, for a short period of time before leaving, and Jimi Hendrix replaced him afterwards. So that is just such a funny little coincidence. Um, so, you know, Jimi was working as a session guitarist and going by the name Jimmy James. And so he was just kind of floating around from different bands and groups and things like that. Jimmy had played with numerous musicians, with the likes of Tina Turner, Sam Cooke, the Isley Brothers, and Little Richard. This was a great match. Jimmy was just so impressed with Little Richard as a whole, and he took so much fashion inspiration from Little Richard. In a later interview, Little Richard was saying, "Like Jimmy, just loved the headbands that I wore around my head and all these kind of different things." So Jimmy kind of took inspiration from everywhere he went and every person that he worked with and it just became something that became so iconic and ubiquitous to Jimi hendrix little richard had a tour manager who is robert pennyman and that's little richard's younger brother and robert was just saying that jimmy was always late and he would upstage little richard all the time so it just came to a point where jimmy was fired from little richard he was such a great guitarist that he was just upstaging everybody and he was late So now Jimmy is kind of on his own again, and he would form a group called Jimmy James and the Blue Flames. And this is what would lead him to one of the best off-chance meetings of all time that would change the course of his life forever. So during one of his shows with Jimmy James and the Blue Flames, there was a girl in the audience, and her name was Linda Keith. She was the longtime girlfriend of Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones. So, Linda is in New York, and she sees Jimi Hendrix on stage playing guitar, and she is just mesmerized. She is blown away by Jimi's sheer talent. Like, she can't believe that no one else is, like, absolutely foaming at the mouth for what Jimi is doing on stage. So she kind of puts Jimmy under her wing and she tries to convince him that he needs to go solo. In a really interesting move, she gives Jimmy one of Keith Richards' guitars. She gives him a Fender Stratocaster, a white one. She's like, listen, you have the power, the talent. You can do this on your own. You don't need a backing band with you. You can do this solo. She's a strong influence over him, and she kind of inadvertently introduces him to drugs, like mind-altering drugs, like LSD, acid, whatever. You know, just kind of the first steps into his drug addiction. Um, But he is just off of his mind on psychedelics, and he is just expanding upon his mind. Linda starts taking Jimmy around to all of these producers trying to get him with a manager. And she first brought him to Andrew Oldham, who's the manager producer for the Rolling Stones. But Andrew wasn't impressed. Weirdly enough, I don't know why he wasn't impressed. Okay. But anyway, another night, Jimmy played for Seymour Stein, who would go on to discover Madonna. But that night, Jimmy was just absolutely feeling it. He was like, Yes, I'm in the mood. I am so awesome. Like he was just feeling the music. And so in this heat of the moment, he ended up smashing the Fender guitar that was given to him by Linda. She was furious that he smashed this amazing guitar and uh, Jimmy and Linda were just going back and forth and Seymour kind of slipped out the door like, okay, um, I'm just leaving. I'm not going to get involved in this. I'm peacing out. But third time is the charm. And so Linda meets up with Chaz Chandler in New York and Chaz Chandler, the bassist for the animals, you know, House of the Rising Sun, yada, 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 you know. Um, So Chaz was considering leaving the animals because he wanted to manage talent instead of being in the animals. So he was making a massive career shift. And Linda is like, listen, you got to see this guy, Jimi Hendrix. He is the next best thing. You have to manage him. It's going to be the best collaboration of all time. You have to meet him. And so Chaz sees Jimmy play at the Cafe Wa in Greenwich Village. Jimmy wasn't making a lot of moves in New York. Like, he wasn't really progressing any further with not only his popularity, but like, it just wasn't happening for him in New York. It wasn't the right location for him to really get going. And he was like, listen, Jimmy, you have to go over to London. You can play whatever you want to play. People are going to love you over there. You're not restricted in London like you are in New York. You can make it big over there. Jimmy was like, "Mm, I don't really know how I feel about going to London. I'm not sure. What sealed the deal was Jimmy agreed to go over to London on the condition that he would be set up with Eric Clapton. Like he was a massive Eric Clapton and Cream fan. He was like, listen, you need to set me up with Eric Clapton and I want to play with Eric Clapton, okay? Because of course, Eric Clapton and Chas Chandler were great friends. So Jimmy was on his way, moving out of New York, going into London, and this is where things change massively and rapidly. It all just fell into place kind of perfectly for him. So Jimmy is on his way to London. So Jimmy officially gets to England on September the 24th, 1966. And on the flight over, this is when Chaz suggests that Jimmy changes the spelling of his name to how we know it now. So it used to be the traditional spelling of Jimmy, but he changed it to what we know now, J-I-M-I. And it was there that Jimi Hendrix was reborn into how we know him now. So this was really interesting, a fact that I didn't know before, and I don't think I've ever heard it being mentioned before. But when he goes to England, he stays at an apartment on 34 Montague Square in London. What's fascinating is this apartment is actually Ringo Starr's apartment that he rents out to people. So, Jimmy subletted Ringo Starr's apartment, and a couple of people have stayed here before, like John Lennon and Yoko Ono have stayed at this place before. I don't know, the connection is just so fascinating. However, it goes, the story goes, that Jimmy stayed there until 1967 when Ringo evicted him because during an acid trip, he apparently splashed white paint on the walls. So, that's one story. And in 1968, him Jimmy, John Lennon, and Yoko stayed in the same apartment for three months when they released the Two Virgins album. So 34 Montague Square is a massive touchstone. 22 Brook Street in London was also another residence that Jimmy lived in for a little bit of time, but 34 Montague Square is the number one place that he lived. And so little by little, Jimmy started acclimating himself to London life and trying to kind of come into his own. And it wasn't long before Chaz was trying to get Jimmy, you know, noticed a lot more. And it didn't take long at all because on October the 1st, 1966, at the Regent Street Polytechnic, this is where Jimmy and Eric Clapton finally get to meet. And Chaz is going to get a backstage meeting between Jimmy and Eric set up. But Jimmy was adamant to say, hey, like, you know, can you ask him if I can play on stage with him? And Eric says, sure. You know, yeah, he can come on stage, whatever. So Jimmy hops up on stage and the song that they play is Howlin' Wolf's Killing Floor. And this is where Clapton is like so flabbergasted by what he sees. He cannot believe like he didn't really expect a whole lot from Jimi Hendrix when he came up. And is like, yeah, okay, this guy wants to play guitar with me, whatever. Because Eric Clapton at the time, he was the untouchable guitar god at this point in time. Like, there was no one better than Eric Clapton. He was the guy. If you need a guitar for something, he was the guy. Like, he was the one that everyone looked up to. He was God. And so, Jimmy was the only one to kind of dethrone Clapton because Jimmy, in some ways is better or just better in a different way like they're just different guitarists in general but when eric really saw what jimmy could do he was left so gobsmacked to to the point where like during the performance eric just walks off the stage and he just cannot believe himself like he goes to chaz and he's like you never told me that this guy was that good so while Jimmy was getting a lot of positive attention from his music, the crowds were still not big enough to grow his reputation. He was just, he was doing a lot better in London, but initially in London, the crowds just weren't as big as he would have really liked for them to be. So in an effort to get Jimmy a bit more exposure, Chaz Chandler asks musician Gino Washington if Jimmy could tag along on their tours as a supporting act. And Gino was like, yeah, of course he can come along. And so this is what Jimmy does for a brief period of time. And so when Jimmy comes back, Chaz and Jimmy both decided that, all right, maybe it's time that we form a band of sorts. And obviously, they were not looking for another guitarist because Jimmy was the main guy. So they were predominantly looking for a three-piece, Jimmy, a bassist, and a drummer. And so they hold auditions and they bring on Noel Redding for bass. It was a very successful audition. And then they audition Mitch Mitchell for the drums. So they audition Mitch Mitchell for drums and he got in. And this is where the trifecta is complete. The Jimi Hendrix experience is now up front and center. So now we are going on to recording their first album and what singles they released in the beginning stages of their group. So Are You Experienced and the singles that they were to put out were recorded over a five-month period from October 1966 to April 1967. And the first album was completed in 16 recording sessions at three London studios. And they began recording on October the 23rd. And they recorded a cover of Hey Joe. And some people don't know this, but Hey Joe is actually a cover. It wasn't an original Jimi Hendrix song. It's kind of funny because soon after these recording sessions were beginning, it was becoming very apparent that Jimi would turn everything up to 11 and just play the hell out of his guitar so loud it would shake everybody it would shake the building, it would shake like the neighboring buildings. It was just loud and very aggressive and in everyone's face. He actually wanted the microphones to be placed about 12 feet in front of him so that they could get a better sound. That's what Jimmy wanted. So initially, they were kind of arguing with each other about the loudness of jimmy's guitar playing because he wanted to really play loudly but they were like can you at least like turn it down just a little bit but they were having fun like in the midst of all this they were still having fun recording hey joe was going to be the first single that they released and that was a cover however chaz chandler decided that they should use an original for side b and so this encouraged jimmy to start writing his first ever music and the first composed jimi hendrix experience song that was written is called stone free the following day that's when the song was composed on october the 24th so the following songs they recorded were a foxy lady and then they did the basic instrumental track for love or confusion can you see me and third stone from the sun and then the fifth and final song that they recorded was red house in these particular sessions And then after a bit of disagreement and confusion between Chaz Chandler and the owners of one of the recording studios, they moved into another studio. So now that they had Hey Joe and they had the Side B, Stone Free, this was released officially in the UK on December the 16th, 1966. So these were the first ever Jimi Hendrix Experience songs to be released. And Hey Joe was really the big one that was like leading the way. It was pile driving through the charts, just monumental. This song was massive for them. And so as Hey Joe was climbing the charts, they were beginning to work on their second single and their second single is Purple Haze. And that was going to be side A. And so this was the second songwriting effort by Jimi Hendrix. So this track, Purple Haze, presented a lot more of a complex arrangement than the band would previously do because before, they really tried to make it a point of only recording a song for about half an hour. However, recording Purple Haze took about four hours of studio time to complete because Purple Haze was so much different than what they were ever doing before. It was because Jimmy was introduced to different kind of effects and experimenting a lot with getting different sounds out of his guitar. And one of the biggest things that helps produce Jimi Hendrix's iconic guitar sound is an Octavia, which is an octave doubling effect pedal that he was given by engineer Roger Mayer in December of 66. And he first used this effect pedal on the guitar solo for Purple Haze. And what's really interesting is that Roger Mayer actually offered this effect pedal to Jimmy Page, the guitarist for Led Zeppelin, and Jimmy passed up on it saying that it was way too far out for him. So when Jimmy was offered this instead, Jimmy Hendrix, he was like, yeah, I'll take it, of course. Absolutely, why not? So that was massive. This was one of the first things that Jimmy was really utilizing in his music to make that really strong impact And it really, really projected his music forward into people's minds. Because you can't listen to something like that and not be in awe of what it creates. So on January the 11th, 1967, the Jimi Hendrix Experience worked on their third single, The Wind Cries Mary. And what is to be of note is that Jimi was an obviously very prolific guitar player, but he wasn't confident as a singer at all with how he wanted to sound and with his own voice. I think that's kind of common, to be honest. There's a lot of awesome singers that just aren't confident in their own voice. So, something that was interesting, Jimmy, whenever he was recording in the studio, he wanted the lights very low in the studio. Unfortunately, though, this caused a bit of chaos because, you know, Jimmy would hand signal to the engineers to say, Yes, start, go, and, you know, stop, or, you know, pause, or something. And the engineers had a difficult time trying to see his visual cues with his hand because it was so low. Not only that, but a large number of female fans would show up to the studio. It was kind of a mess, but at the same time, it was working. So their official second single that they put out was Purple Haze and 51st Anniversary, and this was released on March the 1st and it entered the U.K. singles chart at number 23. It's climbing its way up the charts, and it's really making its rounds. So during the month of March, the band took another long break from recording while they played gigs in Belgium, Germany, and in the U.K., and they were starting to have some appearances on U.K. TV. So on March the 29th, this was where they got back into the studio and they were starting to record more music. And on this day, this is where they were working on the new song that Jimmy wrote called Manic Depression. And then on April 3rd, they returned to another studio. They were like back and forth on three different studios. And they were starting to add overdubs and final mixing to a lot of these tunes. And during one eight-hour session, the band recorded three new songs, including Highway Child, May This Be Love, and Are You Experienced? So finally, the three of them completed the final mixing of Are You Experienced at 3am on the 25th of April. And Chaz Chandler agreed to audition the finished album for Polydor's head of A&R. So... After a few hours of sleep, he prepared a suitable demo and he traveled to Polydor Records. Chaz Chandler recalled that he played the record front and back. And the head of Polydor had like no distinctive reaction right away. It was like silent for the whole album. And then finally, once the album was done, the head of Polydor said, this is the greatest thing I've ever heard. And so it was there that Chaz Chandler really knew and it was solidified in him and in the band that they were making something that was so revolutionary that they just kept on going and they kept on making all this music that we just love today. So some of the lyrics and the inspiration for some of the songs on here are as follows. I just thought I would put a little bit more of information on the tune's So again, Foxy Lady, that's one of the major tunes on this album, and that is said to have come from the inspiration of Jimmy's girlfriend in New York, Faye. Purple Haze, I think, is an interesting one because some people think that it's about an acid trip that Jimmy went on, but Jimmy said that it was all about a dream that I had, that I was walking under the sea. And He speculated that the dream may have been inspired by a science fiction story about a purple death ray. And this is the thing about Jimi Hendrix, too. Jimi Hendrix is a massive outer space and science fiction fan. He just really enjoyed all of that stuff. And with his expansion with LSD and acid and all these other drugs, it just got so much more heightened during this time period. So that is kind of the story behind Purple Haze and... Jimmy told a journalist that Third Stone from the Sun is about a visiting space alien who, upon evaluation of the human species, decides that people are not fit to rule Earth and he destroys their civilization and places the planet in the care of chickens. That's just one example. What can I say? (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Interesting concept, I gotta say. And then The Wind Cries Mary um, so, Jimi Hendrix, at this time in London, he was dating this lady called Kathy Etchingham. And she was kind of a bit of everything. She was a writer. She was um, an artist. She was kind of doing all these different kind of creative things. And so, her and Jimmy were living together and they were dating. And Kathy's middle name is Mary. And so, he wrote this tune for her because one day... It was said that they got into an argument apparently because like Jimmy was making mashed potatoes or something and like the mashed potatoes weren't smooth enough or something like that. Like they were really a fan of mashed potatoes. So I heard they would like eat that all the time. And so they just got into this fight and she was smashing plates and she like stormed out the door and Jimmy sad that she was gone. He wrote the wind cries Mary for her and then she came back home and it was all good. So there's that. So this album, I'm going to kind of break down like this. So they released Are You Experienced in the UK first and then they released it later in the US with a different album cover. In this little section, I'm gonna talk about the UK album cover in the UK release and then how it was all introduced in the US at a later time. So the UK album cover is really underwhelming and not my favorite, to be honest. I think the U.S. album cover is 10 times better than the U.K. one, however. So how the U.K. album cover came about was it was designed by Chris Stamp. It featured a picture of the band by Bruce Fleming. So Bruce Fleming took this picture and the album cover was designed by Chris Stamp. And the image shows Jimmy wearing a long, dark cape while standing over Mitch and Noel Redding. And Chaz Chandler made a point of requesting that the band members' faces be clearly visible in the photograph. That was just a thing at the time, like, record companies wanted to make sure that the album sold and how that could be achieved was if the fans, if the viewers, if the public could see visually what the band looked like, that that would sell more records, apparently. So that was what they wanted to do. They wanted just a simple, basic picture of the band on there. And so they took monochromatic and they took color shots track records selected an image from a group of color photographs and fleming made sure bruce fleming made sure that out of the pictures that he selected for track records to sift through that he chose his favorites and said this one is the one that i'm gonna choose however Track records put out a less desirable image. Like they chose apparently the worst image out of all the ones that Bruce Fleming brought to them, which is silly. And so at this point, like the album cover is just not what Bruce Fleming had in mind. It's not what Jimmy had in mind at all. Like Jimmy was so not pleased about this album cover in the slightest. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But that is the UK version of this album. And before the album gets released, their third single, The Wind Cries Mary, with b-side highway child was released on may the 5th in 1967 so the album are you experience released in the uk on may 12th 1967 and it spent 33 weeks in the charts and it peaked at number two and it remained in the charts long enough that it was still present when they released their second album Axis bold as love and the album, Are You Experienced?, was prevented from reaching number one because the Beatles' Sgt. Peppers was released at the same time. And that took the number one spot, of course. Of course, any Beatles album takes number one spot. Like, obviously, that's just, how it, <laughs> that's just how it goes. So now in the U.S., right? So they were very popular in Europe, of course. However, trying to break into the U.S. market was actually a lot harder than they expected of course. It was the right move that Jimmy was to move to London because it just was so much easier for him. So their first single, Hey Joe, failed to reach the Billboard Hot 100 upon its release in the U.S. on May the 1st, 1967. However, the group's luck improved a lot when Paul McCartney of the Beatles recommended that Jimi Hendrix plays at this Monterey Pop Festival in California, and this was one of the biggest music festivals currently at the time. This was before Woodstock, and Paul McCartney insisted to the organizers that Jimi Hendrix and their band was to play at this pop festival. He insisted that the event would be incomplete without Jimi, who Paul called an absolute ace on the guitar. And he agreed to join the board of organizers on the condition that Jimi Hendrix performs at the festival in mid-June 1967. So that's a really big thing to note here, is Paul McCartney and the Beatles were big proponents of bigging up Jimi Hendrix. It's just it's just kind of a cool experience, so much so that while Sgt. Pepper's the album was completed, it was out in the charts. Brian Epstein, their manager, put on a show at the Saville Theater in London, and this was on June the 4th, 1967. So Brian Epstein, he held a lease on this Saville Theater, and what he would do is on Sundays, he would put on and organize shows. He would bring on all these different bands and talents, and they would play concerts every Sunday. And so on this particular Sunday, June the 4th, Jimi Hendrix was supposed to open for the show. And so Sgt. Peppers, the album, had only been out at that point for two days. And so Jimi Hendrix gets to listening to the album right before they're supposed to go on stage. Jimi goes to his bandmates and he says, hey, I think we should open with the title track to Sgt. Peppers. And Noel and Mitch are like, what do you mean? We have half an hour before we go on stage and you want us to learn this song and, and play it? And Jimmy's like, yeah. So Brian Epstein, George Harrison, Paul McCartney, Eric Clapton, they were in the audience. Jimi Hendrix, they open the show and they play and Jimmy's doing his thing on the guitar. You know, he is whammying the whammy bar. He is doing his thing out there and he is blowing the minds out of people. However, back in those days when you use the whammy bar like that, like Jimmy did back in the day, it would wildly tune your guitar out To the point where after the song, you'd have to retune your guitar. So after this massively mind-blowing introduction, Jimmy is just like standing on the stage and he's trying to like tune his guitar. And so he's looking out into the audience and he's like, hey man, is uh, Eric Clapton out there? And uh, of course, Eric Clapton is out there. And Jimmy's like, hey man, can you tune my guitar for me, please? Eric is like, I'm not here. I'm not here. Eric is like making sure he is not seen. Jimmy just had to tune his own guitar and just get on with the show. But that is one of the biggest kind of things that really massively helped the Jimi Hendrix experience to really come together. So that was the Saville Theater where he did the Beatles. And now they are taken from London and they travel to Monterey, California, where they perform an incredibly iconic concert at the Monterey Pop Festival. So right before they were to attend the Monterey Pop Festival, again, like, they finished their first album, but they were still recording material for their second album, Axis Bold as Love. So it was like one immediately finished and then jumping right into the next album. There was zero downtime between the first album and the second album. So... The band started the session, the recording session, by working on a Noel Redding original that he had written about hippies, which is titled She's So Fine. And then they made initial recordings on what would become If Six Was Nine. And on this track, Graham Nash from Crosby, Stills, and Nash and Gary Leeds made guest appearances on If Six Was Nine because they provided some foot stomping for the background. So that's quite interesting. So on May 9th, they reconvened after some time at another recording studio and Jimmy had been curious about a harpsichord that was stored at the studio. So one day he just decided that he would start learning the instrument and just kind of getting a feel for what the harpsichord was. And from this, he started writing the song Burning of the Midnight Lamp. And this song became the fourth UK single for Jimi Hendrix. And then the following day on May 10th, the band performed their latest single, The Wind Cries Mary, on the top of the pops. So there we go. It is all kicking off for them immediately. So then at that point, they took about a month long break from the studio and they played a couple of gigs to tour for the new album. And then they reconvened on June 5th to record more music for their second album. So now, finally, on June 18th, 1967, this is when they take time off from recording their second album and they go all the way over to California for the Monterey Pop Festival. And they were introduced by Brian Jones as the most exciting performer he had ever heard talking about Jimi Hendrix, of course. And they just go on and they open the door wide open. They put on one of their best shows of all time. And iconically, this is where Jimi Hendrix lights his guitar on fire and he eventually destroys it as well. And he tossed out pieces to the audience as well after he destroyed it. Um, And this photo of Jimi kind of coaxing the flames on his guitar higher and higher. This was captured by a 17-year-old fan in the audience. And he was like right up in the front row, and when Jimmy was lighting his guitar on fire, it was so hot from the flames that this kid actually put his camera in front of his face to kind of block the heat from the flames. So inadvertently, this kid was just right there, right moment, right time, right situation, he clicked And there's the photo. And it became one of the most famous iconic images in rock and roll music history. Not only was that photo taken, but photographer Linda Eastman, who we know as the future Linda McCartney, was also at the Monterey Pop Festival. And she took photos of Jimmy and the band as well. And it was from there that Linda and Jimmy and the rest of the band began their friendship, and she was very prolific in taking photos of Jimi Hendrix. There's a lot of great photos that Linda took of Jimi. Obviously, we know her as Paul McCartney's future wife, and so she took so many photos of Paul as well. Before she even was big with Paul, she took all these amazing photos of all these other musicians, and it's quite interesting if you didn't know that before, but... Um, But yep, Linda was there and she started a friendship with Jimmy from that point on. So that was the festival. The Monterey Pop Festival, I think, was a great stepping stone to really get them into the American audience. So that was really what that was all about. So after the Monterey Pop Festival, the experience was booked for five concerts at Bill Graham's Fillmore with Big Brother and The Holding Company and Jefferson Airplane. And of course, like, they just outperformed Jefferson Airplane immensely. And they replaced them and outperformed them so much that Jimi Hendrix actually took the top bill for the fifth night out of their five-night concerts. I mean, like, it's just, like, mind-blowing. Like, Jimi outplayed everybody. It's just great. It's just great. I love to see it, you know? Like, you love to see it, don't you? So, following their successful West Coast introduction, they were booked as the opening act for their first American tour with the Monkees. You know, hey, hey, we're the Monkees. They were huge. Um, Of course, they were back then. So, they were really starting to kind of bump elbows with a lot of these massive musicians and bands at this time in America now. Um, So, they were just, again, like outperforming everybody. (laughs) interestingly enough though i think the crowd for the monkeys just they just like weren't really digging what Jimi hendrix was doing i mean hello the monkeys do pretty simple easy pop songs right and Jimmy's over here like wailing on his guitar and so the audience was not a fan of what jimmy was bringing to the table with this monkeys tour and so the crowd left the tour after six shows and so, well, you know, I mean, it was happening, you know, this was to really gain publicity for Jimi Hendrix and listen, it was happening, it was going on, so whatever, the crowd wasn't pleased, but whatever, it is what it is. And so they eventually went back um, at the beginning of July and they were working on their second album and so while all this was happening, now in America, they're starting to release their debut album. So, after the Monterey Pop Festival, Reprise Records in America agreed to distribute Are You Experienced. However, despite the increased awareness that the Monterey Pop Festival provided for them, the second single, Purple Haze, with Wind Cries Mary, it was released in the U.S. on August 16th. It only went to number 65 on the chart. So... It just it just wasn't really happening for them with these singles that were being released in America. It wasn't happening like they performed quite poorly on the charts, even though it was doing poorly on the mainstream charts, on the underground radio stations and things like that. It was booming massively. And so Are You Experienced? The album was released in the U.S. on August the 23rd by Reprise Records and the album reached number five on the billboard 200 so there you go like now they're starting to really make a foothold in america and the album remained on the billboard album chart for 106 weeks so the north american edition of are you Experienced featured a totally new cover that i'll mention and it had a new track list so, Reprise Records took out Red House, Remember, and Can You See Me, and they instead included the first A-side singles, Hey Joe, Purple Haze, and The Wind Cries Mary, Um, which is interesting, you know what I mean? I, I think that's quite interesting that they put the singles on the American version of the album instead. Interesting move the album cover for the US one is 10 times better than the UK one. Like, I just have to say, it's so much better, like, immensely. And it's mainly because Jimmy was really a big proponent of making sure this album cover rectified what the first one failed to do. So there were arrangements made for a photo shoot with graphic designer Carl Ferris, And Jimmy wanted something psychedelic, right? So he requested that... Ferris was to be on this photo shoot because Jimmy appreciated the work that he did with the Hollies on their 67 release of the album Evolution. And so he was a massive fan. He was like, listen, we got to get Carl Ferris on here. He knows what he's doing. So during a meeting with the band, Ferris told Jimmy that he wanted to hear more of their music to draw inspiration so that he could best portray them on the album cover. Okay, fair enough. So they allowed Ferris to attend several sessions for Axis Bold as Love. And Ferris brought home tapes from the sessions. And he also listened to their first album intently, just again, to make sure he covered all of his bases. His first impression of the music was that it was so far out that it seems like it came from outer space. This kind of created the backstory that Ferris portrayed the band to have as this group that traveled through space in a biosphere on their way to bring their unworldly space music to earth so this is all of the feelings that he wanted to emit from this album cover that this band is outer worldly and they're here to deliver this crazy music that you'll never hear ever again from anybody else like they were doing it first so with that kind of space concept psychedelic concept in mind Ferris took color photographs of the band at Kew Gardens in London using a fisheye lens. And at the time, using a fisheye lens in the 60s was like the thing to do. So Ferris used what's called an infrared technique of his own invention, which combined color reversal with heat signature. So it further enhanced the psychedelic nature of the image. And Ferris was also an experienced fashion photographer. And so he just had like these innate eyes that could capture these fine details that not only helped portray the album cover in such a way, but he made sure that the fashion that the band was wearing was like top of the line. It was exactly what it needed to be. It was like perfect. Like down to how Jimmy combed his hair. It all had to be presented in such a way. And so Jimmy was a big lover of fashion anyway. And so this was like, again, a match made in heaven for him. So Jimmy had this big afro that he would comb. The photographer Ferris requested that he were to wear it that way during the photo shoot. And Noel Redding and Mitch Mitchell were to style their hair in a similar afro kind of way. Jimmy just wore clothes from his wardrobe anyway. So it was like no big deal. And so this is how it was all done. And they just took one photo during this session at Kew Gardens, and that was it. That was the one. So Ferris also chose the cover's yellow background, and it's kind of psychedelic, surreal-looking lettering, and he intended originally for the album cover to be textured and for it to be a gayfold textured jacket. Verprise Records didn't approve the textured gayfold jacket because... That would be too much money. And of course, they weren't going to shell out. (laughs) Why would they shell out on the Jimi Hendrix for their debut album in the US? It's just like mind-blowing to me. How crazy would that have been? A textured gay fold jacket. I don't know. I've never really heard about that before, even back in the 60s even. I don't know. That's just crazy to me. So now we're getting into more about their second album, Axis Bold as Love. So the release date, for the album was delayed because Jimmy lost the master tape of side one of the album when he accidentally left it in the back seat of a London taxi. So with this deadline looming over them, they had to record the first side completely over again. So Jimmy was kind of disappointed about having to remix this album so quickly. And he felt that it could have been better had they had more time. But unfortunately, it just kind of is what it is. And this was at the point where, you know, Jimmy was just demanding numerous retakes because he was such a perfectionist and he wanted things to be a certain way. And the other band members were starting to become kind of annoyed at Jimmy's perfectionist ways. And they were getting frustrated and this was where the very start of their downfall as a band was taking place with kind of in this realm of, we got to get this out as soon as possible, but I want more retakes. And it's just, it became a whole conflict. It became a whole thing. It just wasn't good at all. You know what I mean? It just, it just was one of those things that just was not good. What's interesting as well is a lot of the songs on their second album were rarely performed Live. Only Little Wing and Spanish Castle Magic were regularly performed. Um, The album cover is again another one that Jimmy was so unhappy with because the album depicts Jimmy and the rest of the band as various forms of the god Vishnu. So Jimmy was like in awe that this was even done. Like They had no say in what this album cover was. Jimmy hated it. He said the album cover would have been more appropriate had it had highlighted his American Indian heritage instead. But for some reason, the record company went with this instead? I don't know. It was weird. It it was strange that Jimmy and the rest of the band had no say in this album cover whatsoever. It just was weird. Like, Jimmy had all these ideas and he was shut down. It was strange. Track Records finally released Access Bold as Love in the UK on December 1st, 1967, where it peaked at number 5 on the charts and it spent 16 consecutive weeks. And in February of 1968, it charted at number 3 in the United States. And the album was received very well by music critics who praised its mixture of hard rock, R&B, and jazz. And of course, their first album was also very well received too. And so, again, there was no break between the release and the coming out and the making of albums. These three albums were made pretty much within a consecutive year of each other. It's crazy to think about, but it's true. So, after Axis Bold As Love was released in December, they then continued to work on Electric Ladyland in January of 1968. So at this time, right, each gig that Jimmy and the rest of the members were putting on, each gig that they were doing, they earned around $100,000, which at the time was a lot of money, rightfully so. That's a lot of money. However, Noel, Mitch, and Jimmy didn't actually receive much of that or any of that money because it was pocketed by their manager. Who had flown to the Bahamas and he'd blown it all for himself. And I'm going to get into him. Their manager is a really sketchy, really interesting character. I'll just say that right now. So put it into perspective, right? Jimi Hendrix, he has dethroned all of these guitarists and has been, like number one. They're making this amazing music, all these albums. They're putting on these very successful tours, however. By 1968, Jimmy only had about $20 in his pocket because, again, he wasn't seeing barely any of the money that they were coming in with because his manager pocketed most of the money. Not only was Jimmy not making a lot of money, which you would think he would, but he wasn't seeing a lot of his money. Because they set the bar so high for themselves and their performances, they started to get tired of the repetitiveness of performing the same songs over and over and over again. Like, Hey Joe was the one that they were doing like all the time. And it was just something that Jimmy was getting so tired of doing. And of course, like Jimmy had all these tricks up his sleeve of like playing the guitar behind his back, playing the guitar with his teeth, you know, setting things on fire and all this other stuff. And it's like, they set the bar so high for themselves that the crowds expected that level of gravitas every single concert so you can only imagine how tired and frustrated jimmy and the rest of the band were feeling that they couldn't they couldn't like be in alignment with their past selves because they were ever evolving and they wanted to do more things however they set the bar so high it's it's just it was starting to kind of crumble upon them and not only that But the clashing of the band members was starting to carry on from Axis into Electric Ladyland, and this would be their third and last album. So it just created like a perfect storm situation. So something that was a little bit different from this album as compared to their previous two albums was they equally spent their time in US studios and in the UK as well, because Jimmy was kind of spending a good portion of his time between New York and also in London. And so they were kind of split between the two cities. So during one of these times that Jimmy and the band and their manager, Michael Jeffrey, was in New York, Jimmy actually bought a defunct nightclub in Greenwich Village. It was called The Generation. And so a lot of people actually advised Jimmy to convert the nightclub into a recording studio instead of like carrying it on as a nightclub. They really advised him to use the space in a way that would suit him better and turn it into a recording studio. Because studio fees for Electric Ladyland were becoming quite astronomical. It was just beginning to get so expensive. And so it made kind of sense that Jimmy would create his own studio and do it all... There and you know, Jimmy was constantly in search of a recording environment that suited him. So now that he was the owner of this nightclub and he could turn it into his own studio, it just seemed to be another good fit for him. So he brought an architect in to design the studio for him, and from there, Electric Lady Studios was born. It was the only artist owned recording studio in existence at the time. The studio was made specifically for Jimmy with round windows and a machine capable of generating ambient lighting in a variety of colors. It was designed to have a very relaxing feel to encourage Jimmy's creativity, but at the same time, provide a professional recording atmosphere. However, even though Jimmy acquired this club and turned it into his own studio, he only spent 10 weeks Recording in Electric Lady, most of which took place while the final phases of construction were still going on. So he didn't even use it for that long before he passed away, which is sad, but that is what it is. So while they were recording this album and they were doing the studio work at Electric Lady, they recorded 50 takes, over 50 takes, of the song Gypsy Eyes over the course of three sessions. And Jimmy was just more and more and more insecure about his voice. He was just hiding behind these big studio screens while he was recording them because he just didn't like all of these eyes on him. And it's just something that he never really liked, to be honest. Because of all of these things coming together, Jimmy was always asking for more takes. He was insecure in his voice. This just further frustrated the band to no end. And Jimmy actually allowed his friends and guests to join them in the studio, which also dogpiled on the numerous reasons why the band was to inevitably split. It was just like way, way too much in the recording studio. And so at this point, Chaz Chandler had to sever his professional relationship with Jimmy. It was just like, there was no way that it could continue on like this. There was no way. So Noel Redding at this point in time actually already formed his own band by mid-1968 called Fat Mattress. And Noel, again, he just found it so increasingly difficult to fulfill his commitments to the Jimi Hendrix experience while also doing his own stuff. And just, it was just like a conundrum. It was just like a mess. So interestingly, Jimmy actually played many of the bass parts on Electric Ladyland. And what maybe some of you know, or maybe didn't know, was that this album was produced and directed by a Jimi Hendrix. Most of the work on this album was done by Jimi Hendrix. There was only like one song that was done by Noel and one other cover that they did, but most of it was Jimi Hendrix and it just came from him, his own mind, his own stuff. So there were more music collaborations that came on um, to come in and help Jimi with the album. And again, there were covers, there were original songs, a plenty. And one of the most famous covers that Jimmy was to ever do on this album was Bob Dylan's All Along the Watchtower. And this became the band's highest selling single and their only US top 40 hit ever. Um, and it reached at number five in the UK and it went to number 20 in the US. So this is so frustrating because this is, again, the third time that Jimmy voiced his desire for what the album cover should be. And he was silenced completely. Like, they were just not having all these awesome ideas that Jimmy had on the table. They were like, no, nope, we're not doing that. We're doing it our own way. It was frustrating. So Jimmy had written to Reprise Records describing what he wanted the album cover to be. Linda McCartney, right? She took a color photograph of the band in Central Park in New York. And they were surrounded by children and a sculpture from Alice in Wonderland. It was It's a really, really cool photo, actually. It was really, really cool. And I'm like, yeah, that would make a great album cover for this album. And Jimmy specifically wanted this color photograph by Linda McCartney as their cover. Instead, weirdly enough, I don't know why this even happened. Reprise Records instead used a blurred red and yellow photo of Jimmy's head while he was performing at the salville theater instead i don't know why i said it like that too. the seville um yeah i don't know it's just it's just so frustrating that this happened again like three times this happened like i don't know it doesn't stop there that's just the cover when you look at the inside of the gay fold of the record it's a whole mess in there so track records they used its art department who also shot a picture that was to go on the inside of the album cover. And it had 19 nude ladies lounging in front of a black background with a photo of Jimmy. And Jimmy was like, what is this? I just don't understand. Um, He was initially disappointed, but, you know, he later told Rolling Stone magazine that he dug it anyway, which is like, whatever, what can you do? You know, I thought it was really really nice however in november of 2018 electric ladyland was re-released with the intended linda mccartney photo as the cover photo that jimmy originally wanted so it was rectified in 2018 which is nice but he never got to see it while he was alive and i think that is quite shady business if you ask me like what the fuck (laughs) Anyway, their third and final album, Electric Ladyland, was released in the U.S. on October the 16th, 1968. It was a hit psychedelic album, and by mid-November, it had reached number one in the U.S., and it spent two weeks on the album's pop charts. So the double album was the experience's most commercially successful release and Jimmy's only number one album. In the UK, the album peaked at number six and charted for 12 weeks. So some music critics were a bit confounded at the just immense denseness of the album and others loved it. It was kind of a love or hate thing for most critics. You either liked the album or you just were confused and you didn't know why it needed to be a double album and you didn't like it. Um, So whatever, it is what it is. Um, But this was their most commercially successful album that they ever put out. However, because of all the reasons I stated before, and then some, the band just came to a complete separation. It was Noel, actually, that left the band in the first place in 1969. He just couldn't do it anymore. Mitch Mitchell stayed on, though, but Noel left the band, and so, therefore, the Jimi Hendrix experience was kind of no more, you know? And, And again, like, it just was coming to a head because Jimmy, at this point in time, he was drinking a lot and he was excessively drugging. And he was drugging so much that it sometimes resulted in him having panic attacks. And because he drank a lot too, he would become violent when he drank as well. So he was just on all these drugs. He was drinking all the time. He was becoming more and more aggressive and violent and him and Kathy Etchingham eventually were to break up. She just couldn't handle it anymore. And at this point in time in history as well, this is 1968-69, the politics back home in America was also bleeding profusely into Jimmy. He couldn't really ignore it because when they were going over to America to play, you know, as a black musician at this time in the civil rights movement, which he was a big proponent of, he was afraid that he would maybe get shot or, you know, something. You know, you never know what could happen. and he actually at one point donated money to Martin Luther King Jr.'s campaign, you know, like what he was doing. Like he was a big fan, of course. So it's just funny because people were kind of asking him to talk on politics and all of these things, but he never really gave a lot of credence to it because, again, he was anti-war and he was pro-peace. So not only was politics... And drugs on his back, but also the breakup of his band and all these things and having pretty much no money because his manager pocketed all the money. It, it, It just honestly was the perfect storm of things that could have happened that resulted in the breakup of the band. So Jimmy, however, was not one to back down easily. So with Noel Redding gone, he reconnected with Billy Cox, who was his King Casuals partner and with billy cox with jimmy mitch mitchell and a few other musicians they reformed themselves and they were going by the band name gypsy sun and rainbows so they were doing a little bit here and there with some music and the band was brought on to perform at the most famous most well-renowned music festival of all time this is where woodstock comes in oh yes so this happens in woodstock new york of course on august 18th 1969 and this performance also with the monterey pop festival are the two really big shows that people know Jimi hendrix by in particular and one surprising i guess cover that jimmy does at woodstock is the star spangled banner the national anthem and this is actually considered one of the most revered guitar solos of all time It's just one of the best. People are, like, in awe of this guitar solo. It's, like, amazing. It's mind-blowing. This is the only political thing Jimmy was to ever do, though. That kind of is the basic rundown of Woodstock. I mean, we all know what Woodstock was, right? We all know. I might have to do an episode on Woodstock, actually. I might have to do that. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep, that might be on my list of uh, things to talk about because I like Woodstock a lot. It's just so, so fascinating. Jimi Hendrix... He goes on to perform at Woodstock. The people love him. So this next story, I had never in my life heard of something so weird as this next story. Buckle in, because it's going to be a really wild one, honestly. It's a wild ride from start to finish. Um, So sometime after Woodstock, Jimmy was roaming around New York City at night, and this story comes from one of Jimmy's unsavory friends who was drug dealer John Roberts, okay? So this story comes from John Roberts, but it happened. It happened. It's, it's strange. And, you know, Jimmy, of course, because he was in drugs heavily, he was surrounded by a lot of unsavory, not great people that didn't have his best interest. It is what it is. Um, so one night while out in New York, Jimmy is looking to buy some cocaine. And he went into a nightclub where he was met with two Italian wise guy wannabes. When these guys saw Jimmy, they jumped on the chance to make some serious moolah. So they thought to themselves, let's kidnap Jimmy Hendrix and hold him for ransom for two days. That sounds like a great idea. What could possibly go wrong? So they kidnapped Jimmy. They hold him ransom for two days. They contacted his management team. And their manager, Michael Jeffrey, was the one that picked up the phone. I mentioned that Michael Jeffrey is an also unsavory character because Michael Jeffrey, he was the also the manager of the animals, too. That's how Michael Jeffrey came into the picture because Chaz Chandler asked him to step in. Michael Jeffrey has high connections in the Newcastle mafia. Not only in Newcastle, but other mafias everywhere in England. And apparently he had some thug connections in America as well. So in my mind, it's almost like these thugs called Scarface and they're calling up Scarface to make a deal. So they call up, they talk to Michael Jeffrey and they're like, listen, you either pay our ransom money that we ask for or... You give us a stake in royalties for any future music released. Well, they're idiots because, as history goes, Electric Lady lands the last album that they would ever do and Jimmy dies not long after. So, these uh, wise guy wannabes are really stupid. So, Michael Jeffrey sends a group of thugs armed with machine guns over to free Jimmy. However, that is according to Michael, okay? Michael says that he sent thugs armed with machine guns out to free Jimmy. However, John Roberts was the one that saved the day because, of course, as a drug dealer in New York, he had mafia connections as well. And he figured out the identities of the two kidnappers and he threatened them over the phone. Listen, free Jimmy. Like, you don't want to get in the wrong here. Free Jimmy or we're going to beat you the hell up. So, the kidnappers relented and they gave up Jimmy. And... Two weeks after this event, John Roberts made good on his word, and he sent over his thugs, found the kidnappers, and gave them a beating of a lifetime. You're probably asking yourself, hmm, how was Jimi Hendrix during this whole time? Like, how was he feeling during this kidnapping that he was involved in? Like, Was he afraid? Was he scared? Like, what happened to Jimi? Well, apparently, Jimi was so stoned out of his mind that he barely remembered the event. So he was fine with it. He was like, whatever, it's a normal Tuesday for me, I guess. I don't know. So that is the story of how Jimi Hendrix got kidnapped for two days in New York. Fun times. Really, uh, really fun times. What can I say? So unharmed and um, back in London after the whole kidnapping ordeal, he was under pressure from Michael Jeffrey and the recording company to record a follow-up album to Electric Ladyland. And he was also required to produce an album's worth of new material for Capitol Records in order to satisfy a contract dispute with former manager Ed Chaplin. So, you know, Jimmy came back and he was under all of these obligations to make more music. Michael Jeffery insisted that Jimmy stop this whole business with the Gypsy Sun and Rainbows and to make another power trio again. Just go to three people. You don't need all these other extra people in there. Michael Jeffrey was only seeing it as a means of making more money. So, in October of 1969, Jimmy and Billy Cox began jamming and recording demos with drummer Buddy Miles. And Miles was a frequent jam partner and played the drums on the two-part song Rainy Day Dream Away slash Still Raining Still Dreaming for Electric Ladyland, so the three of them together formed this new band called the band of gypsies and they only put out one album which was a live album and they were over as quickly as they came because even with this new band if you will there was a lot of issues because there was one time where there was a disastrous show at madison square garden on january the 28th 1970 where jimmy only played two songs and then refused to play any more music. He was done. He, he was just kind of over it. He's like, listen, I'm done. So it ended as soon as it came. So they broke up before the album, Band of Gypsies, was even released. So there you go. And this album was released on March the 25th, 1970. And it entered the Billboard chart at number 18. So it did pretty decent for itself. Not gonna lie. It did pretty decent in the midst of this whole thing, Jimmy is like falling apart on all fronts. Jimmy catches word that Kathy Etchingham got married on March 9th. So he was like, right, I am booking a flight from New York to London. And he does. And he attempts to try and win her back saying, listen, I am clean. I want you back in my life. Leave your husband and and stay with me. You know, live with me and let's continue our relationship, and all of this, and all of that. And it just couldn't have been. He was too late. He realized too late that Kathy Etchingham was the love of his life, and he lost her. So, you know, Jimmy was kind of now in London after having failed to win Kathy Etchingham back after Band of Gypsies was released. There was nothing really for him to do, so he thought Why don't I say hello to Noel and Mitch and maybe we'll see if things can pick up again? Um, So they start kind of hanging out with each other, um, making a little bit of music together, but nothing was really coming about from that. They, however, managed to score a gig at the Isle of Wight Festival on August the 30th. So Jimmy stayed in London up until basically the Isle of Wife Festival, just hanging out with Nolan Mitch and all of his other friends in London, just kind of, you know, hanging out with them. So the last album that was to be released, this was after Jimmy's death, but Jimmy was making new music and it was comprised on an album called Cry of Love. You know, obviously he wasn't thinking that he was going to die anytime soon, However, he was just creating new music and recording new stuff. You know, it's like what could have been, you know, it's very sad, but it is what it is. They perform at the Isle of Wight and he comes back to London and Jimmy was kind of in a relationship with German figure skater and painter Monica Dannerman. And so one day on the 18th of September, Monica wakes up to find Jimmy in bed unconscious The day before, on the 17th, they were hanging out, drinking wine together. Then they went to a party, and then they came back home. Pretty inconsequential day, but that's pretty much what happened. And so on this day, the 18th, she wakes up, and she sees that he's unconscious, having choked on his own vomit in his sleep, because he had taken a monumental amount of sleeping pills combined with wine. And so she books it, right? She's like, oh, my God, what the hell? So Jimmy was rushed to the hospital where he was pronounced dead at 11.45 a.m. And of course, I think we all know that Jimmy was 27 years old when he died. He is part of the infamous 27 club where other musicians died at 27. You join this club like Kurt Cobain, Jimi Hendrix, Brian Jones, Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin, etc, etc. Anyway, That is, um, the short of it, really. That is the basic rundown of Jimi Hendrix's death. I mean, it takes one, one day, one mistake. I mean, it was reported in his uh, medical reports after his death that he ingested 18 times the legal amount or the normal amount of sleeping pills. So he had those in his system and he had alcohol and he had a little bit of heroin too. So it just, it just kind of, um, came to a head. So, Jimi Hendrix's death is one that is embroiled in controversy. Some people think that he was murdered by his manager, Michael Jeffrey in a means of making money off of him um, because he was a liability. Michael Jeffrey had realized that Jimi was worth more dead than alive. And so, the conspiracy is that Michael and some accomplices forced Jimi to ingest all these things and kill him because they took out a $2 million life insurance policy out on him. That is just the conspiracy theory, okay? It should be noted that Jimmy's girlfriend, Faye Pridgen, from earlier, who I mentioned, she gives little credence to this conspiracy theory because she knew that Jimmy actually suffered from sleep apnea. So what's interesting was she said in a later interview that she used to wake Jimmy up and make him turn over on his side because he was choking on himself. So that could have been it for sure. I mean, he definitely no doubt had a lot of drugs and alcohol in his system that coupled with sleep apnea, I think just created the perfect storm that took him out, unfortunately. After Jimmy's death, Cry of Love the album was released on March 5th, 1971 and the album entered the Billboard chart in the US at number 17. And by April, it sold 500,000 copies. It's just sad. You know, it's really, really sad that this happened to Jimmy at the end of his life. He was only 27. He was very young. A whirlwind story of one man and his love of music and his guitar, trying to make it big, trying to make a name for himself. He knew he had ungodly levels of talent that he could not hold back from. He just had to let it out. And uh, it was right place, right time for him to go to London and to have all the success that he did. Because I'm telling you, without going to London, having all of his connections, it, it wouldn't have really gone down the same way if he had just stayed in America. I really think it would have been a quite different situation. You know, Jimi Hendrix is one of the best guitar players of all time. He's so highly revered. He's so highly revered. You know, I love him and miss him all the time. He is just fantastic. So that's it. That is the story, the life and death of Jimi Hendrix and the story of three albums he was to create in his time with the Jimi Hendrix experience, Woodstock, Monterey Pop Festival, everything in between. He lived his life how he wanted to live it. And even though drugs and alcohol got the better of him, he um he he made it. He lived his life how he wanted to live it. And he's, he's just one of the greatest people. You know, he's just so so talented and multifaceted, and who knows what music he would have come out with had he had lived, but that is the story of Jimi Hendrix. Thank you for taking the time to listen. I hope that you learned something new that you hadn't learned about before. That was great. That was such a great episode for me to research, and I'm happy to have provided all of this awesome information to you guys. So I hope you guys have an awesome day, and I will see you guys next Wednesday with a new episode of On The Mix. I'll talk to you guys next time. Bye, guys.